Hello and welcome back. My name is Luke and you're listening to another episode of the Next Stage podcast by Web Summit, taking you inside the minds of business and cultural leaders from around the world. It's Wednesday, and every Wednesday we're looking at some of the best and brightest minds that Web Summit has to offer. So sit back, relax, and listen in as we hear from the leading minds and industry giants from all over the planet. 2020 has brought the prospect of living in a virtual world into sharper focus. Will we soon be living in virtual worlds? The tipping point is closer than ever. But what will be the meaning for economies and society at large? And how is the multi-billion dollar gaming industry key to what this future will look like? Joining us now is the co-founder and CEO of the UK gaming unicorn, Improbable. Ladies and gentlemen, Herman Narula. Good to have you with us. Great to be here and a really fascinating topic to talk about. Well, you say that a true virtual world has to provide an experience that offers real value. So that really broadens the definition of a virtual world quite dramatically, doesn't it? It does. I think part of the problem we have in this topic is that virtual worlds are emerging from gaming. And in most people's minds, gaming is a trivial thing. It's for entertainment. It's a distraction. Um, But I think as games have become more and more sophisticated, they've become able to fulfill deeper psychological needs, bring us together in new ways, teach us new skills. So I think virtual worlds are really what happens when when gaming evolves. I guess this sort of explains why early games like World of Warcraft were so successful. People were invested in them. They provided value through gameplay. You got friendships out of it, a sense of community. But you're not calling those true virtual worlds. Why? I think behavior within World of Warcraft certainly began to go in that direction. But I think there are still limitations to what you can achieve uh, with the technology of the time when World of Warcraft was built. Um, For really building an environment in which the deepest psychological needs are fulfilled, you need to be able to support complex worlds with everyone able to interact and influence that world. The world has to be persistent so that your actions have consequences over time. And it has to be of sufficient complexity that it can give the player both goals and problems and ideas to explore and to interact with that go beyond what typical games do. World of Warcraft and other MMOs were a great first step in that direction. But I think we're now going to see you know, a whole other world uh, emerging. Right. I think we call them sandbox games, largely because it was up to your own imagination to take the sand that was given to you by those developers and build something out of it. So if a true virtual world must provide value, but also cross over into our real lives, what does that mean for the complexity of that any given virtual sandbox? Well, I mean, I would say that um, the real crossover point, as you described, is, is one where I can have a job in a virtual world. You know, and the economics of, of games support that. Most uh, of the biggest, most successful games are free to play, which means that the majority of revenue is actually uh, generally put into the game by a tiny fraction of the players. Everyone else plays for free. Everyone else is actually doing work that in a sense makes that game more playable because there are people to play with and there are things happening in the world that are engaging. It's a short jump from that to people who are full-time moderators or even cast members inside a game. And this is some of the stuff that at Improbable we're exploring because we see that as really changing the entire rule set of what a game can be, how valuable it can be, and what kind of fun and also deep psychological need it can be. So then how do you get over the psychological hurdle? Like if I told my mom I had a job in a virtual world, she'd roll her eyes and go, come on, get a real job. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the idea of sitting in front of a computer all day, conducting, wait a minute, we're doing that right now, right? You know, the, the difference between, um, it's semantics. We're all basically doing virtual jobs now. Our phones, our TVs, 
even abstract things like the stock market. Um, you know, these are all these all exist inside the digital world. Um, to have a job or to have meaningful relationships form uh, on a computer, whether it be on Tinder or in a game, doesn't cheapen or devalue the real world. It just adds another dimension to it. You know, I, I think part of the problem with this debate is it's become either or. You know, is the virtual world where we will spend our time on a real one? I say, why choose? I want to spend time in both. Uh, you know, in the same way that uh, radio and theater and books, you know, didn't kill each other off, they added to a palette of new experiences. I think virtual worlds will take us forward. There's a term uh, I use and we use it in Probable called the multiversal self. And it's trying to envision what it would be like and why it would be better to exist in a world where there are these other virtual worlds. And I think it just allows you as an individual to broaden who you are. Maybe in the real world, you know, you have this job, but perhaps, Michael, in another world, you know, you're paid to do something like slay dragons or, you know, run a company inside, uh, in, inside a virtual world. And in fact, that behavior exists today. Um, it's just not very widespread. Oh, okay. So uh, slaying dragons aside, I suppose the, the real money would be made once you've created a, that sandbox that, that takes that real world and applies it to the virtual. And what I mean by is that it's not just enough for a virtual world to have a physics model where you could slay the dragon and it rolls down the hill. You need to have an economic model too. Oh no, absolutely. And, and you know, the interesting thing is that the psychology of possession and utility teaches us that people actually are already pretty comfortable um, defining and owning valuable things that are relatively abstract. Just look at fashion, you know, the difference in a Chanel handbag's utility value to me or to somebody who, who buys one and its actual material value is enormous. You know, where does that value come from? What does it mean? Well, it's the social value of it, right? It's the, it's the meaning to other humans. Um, in the same way, a digital item, which you know, might signify your status or give you some awesome thing you can do in a game, and it's very rare and scarce, you know, has just as much value. And global fraction is a, you know, it's a trillion dollar industry, and it's one with many harmful effects on the environment. Perhaps a world in which some of the things we buy, not all, but some, are in virtual worlds. It's a, it's a greener world, and it's a more fun world. Wait a minute, are you telling me at some point we're going to see a Chanel skin in Fortnite? Well, I don't think that time is very far away at all. I mean, just look at all the crossovers Fortnite have already done with uh, things like Marvel and beyond. Uh, you know, in fact, um, lately the data would indicate that a lot of fashion brands are struggling to engage young people, especially in fast fashion. They're more environmentally conscious. They don't want to signal wealth or success in quite the same ways. You know, you can check someone's Instagram now if you want to see where they've been on holiday and who they are. You don't have to rely upon an expensive pair of jeans. Um, it might seem very shallow, but it's a big part of our society. And to have that replaced with something more efficient and also perhaps more joyful, more accessible in gaming, um, I think can be great. I also like the egalitarian nature of, of virtual worlds when we think about their economies. Because you can pay in money, yes, but you can also pay in effort and achievement. And that can create a much more level playing field. All right, you cite Fortnite as an example of the potential for games to bring people together. And there is an even, uh, even an economic component to that world as well. No, there absolutely is. But I think Fortnite, again, you know, in many ways, a huge success, one that, you know, I really admire, but an accidental one. You know, it started off as a game and it's becoming other things uh, in where it goes, but still limited. You know, 100 people watching a concert is exciting and cool and not something we can do before. But I want to go to a concert with 10,000 people. You know, the, the kind of scale that's required to trigger that thing in human beings that makes us feel like we're really together, that's still a little bit beyond us technically. I mean, that's exactly the problem set that we're working on in Rome. So tell me about competence, relatedness, and autonomy, and the role a virtual world should play in those needs. Does a virtual world need to be larger than life to beat out real life? That's a great question. Um, those areas you mentioned, they come from an area of psychology called self-determination theory. It's about 30 years old. 
it's very well researched, its results are very reproducible. And it basically says that human beings have certain intrinsic motivations, things we just need. If you left us alone in a room, you know, we would explore, we would urge towards complexity. We want to be competent, be better at things. We want to and are motivated to express ourselves and to create things. And we, of course, want you know, company and to mean something to one another. So if games can't fulfill those needs, like really fulfill those needs, and there's no way to fake it. You can't make me pretend to think I'm competent or autonomous at, at these things. You kind of got to give me the real experience. There'll never be something people really truly want to spend their time in in the right way. And, and let's draw a distinction here between, if you will, good engagement and bad engagement, right? You know, a casino can be engaging and addictive, but right. in time it destroys its customers. And, and that actually is a limiting factor in, in, in those more negative businesses. But if games are genuinely fulfilling these needs, the research would say that these needs are also quite well linked to happiness, positive outcomes, better life relationships, all kinds of things. So, you know, I think we should start to see games as a powerful way to let more people achieve their potential and learn useful skills that will help them in the real world, and probably at younger ages too. Well, you founded a company that wants to be a foundation for other companies to build these worlds. So what do developers think they need to know about what it takes, but often get wrong? So, you know, we're really blessed to be working with some amazing developers around the world. We're also building our own games, uh, big one, Scavengers, our first big game shipping in just a couple of months. Um, I think part of the, the kind of catch-22 in the games industry is the actual art of game design is still in a very early stage. Um, game design is where engineering was, you know, centuries ago. You kind of, you kind of know patterns and you reapply them, but no one really knows why they work. Um, you know, why is Battle Royale good? How do you innovate and synthesize new genres? It's very, very hard. So the technology that we're building is designed not only to give people new tools, but to drastically reduce the cost of building games. Um, it's a dirty secret in the games industry that some games take several thousand people several thousand people, several years, and four or five hundred million dollars to make. So, you know, reducing that cost and making the time to market quicker is essential to promote evolution and to make games, make game developers more comfortable taking risk, you know, trying things like having jobs in games. So they're throwing too many people at a problem when solutions already exist. Well, absolutely. I think that, you know, the approach that game developers take today is one of building as much content as possible. And that tries to mask the fact that the world itself isn't as complex or as rich or as fulfilling as it could be. Um, when the world, the system of the world is complex, you don't need as much content. I mean, just think about our day today, everyone you know, listening to this, you didn't go to a hundred exotic new locations today, but it was still a fulfilling day because the world itself is so rich in the same locations with the same content, you can do infinitely variety of things. Well, let's talk about that because COVID-19 is accelerating the adoption of digital technologies. We're seeing companies digitalize at an astounding rate. We saw a year's worth of internet growth in just the month of March alone. So where is COVID acting as a thin edge to the wedge to pry open the virtual worlds market? Well, I mean, I'll just give you a, an anecdote from us. Uh, we're a company that literally builds virtual worlds, but we had a physical office. We went into COVID, everyone was very lonely. 800 of us around the world who didn't really have a chance to be with one another. And we were like, wait a minute, we solved this problem. So we built uh, internally, and we're not sharing it just yet, but we built a custom environment, and now we do our town halls in a virtual space with all of us at the same time. You know, we watch movies together. We, somebody was ill, and everyone crowded on and jumped on top of them in, in this physical environment. It was incredibly touching um, and really cool. And we're beginning to see that what felt like a really rubbish replacement for the real world actually has some really interesting components to it in the context of an office environment that you can't really get. Um, people seem more willing to kind of be playful, to express themselves, to engage with colleagues in a serendipitous way that they perhaps wouldn't in a you know, more stuffy kind of office environment. So 
I think what COVID has done is it's opened people's minds to the fact that we can't wait any longer. We have to build these tools. We have to give people this freedom. And I think it's also connected a lot of people back to their families, to their hobbies, in a way that perhaps means they don't want work to be this place they go to anymore. They want it to be an activity they do, a part of their life. So I think it'll be huge for, uh, for, for gaming and for virtual world. You've supplied expertise to help map COVID-19 transmission, I understand. How did that work? So the same technology that is going to allow gaming to scale is technology that we actually apply in many areas. We work with the US DOD, uh, the UK Department of Defense. We work on COVID modeling, all kinds of things. But the technology is really about trying to build complex simulations of the real world that can be representative. And actually, that's the same technology you need in order to make the games we're describing more real. So the same technology that tries to bring more AI into, say, scavengers when it launches. The basic principles, although not the same exact tech, is used to do things like uh, COVID modeling and beyond. Okay. Per Sorry, continue. Sorry to interrupt, but we were able to, for example, speed up uh, COVID modeling uh, in some narrow contexts quite a lot. We're still at an early stage with this work, but we're going to be public with this. I, I wanted to, to get your take on this as, as we wrap up our time together. Uh, what do you make of the discussions in certain academic and scientific circles that suggest the real world is also a simulation? I actually am um, a big fan of a uh, scientist called Carlo Rovelli. I really recommend his work. And reading his uh, book on In Search of Quantum Gravity, I kind of dispelled in my own head the notion that that is probably not true. And why I think that is just wherever human beings see infinities or see kind of you know infinite, infinite recursion of virtual worlds or an infinite universe, physics tends to catch up and find more interesting ways of expressing those problems. Um, I also would say that, you know, if we really are in a simulation, it seems odd that we are in a simulation that can still make simulations because you'd think we would have reached bedrock, right? And we'd be in one of the leaf mod nodes that, you know, that can't do that. So I think this is a new, a new kind of religion that's sort of like forming around some of our ideas. It's kind of fun how the same ideas recur over and over and over again. But, you know, personally, I'm not a believer in it, although I'd like to make one. Herman, thank you so much for your time and insight. This has been great. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Herman Anarula is the co-founder and the chief executive officer of UK-based Improbable. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Web Summit 2020 continues. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more about these topics firsthand, or you want to let us know what you want to hear, be sure to check us out on any of our social media accounts or visit websummit.com. That's websummit.com.